0: In the opening days of the new year, the wrangling among House Republicans was on full display. There were emotional scenes and a series of votes before Kevin McCarthy was finally elected House Speaker. What did that say about the state of American politics? This is Our Take with Common Ground Committee co-founders Bruce Bond and Eric Olson. I'm Richard Davies. First I asked Bruce, were the public disagreements leading up to Speaker McCarthy's election just messy or a sign of real dysfunction in America's political system?
1: I think it is a little of both. Democracy's messy. I, I really reject the notion that, you know, we're hearing from leaders like President Xi in China that, you know, this is a this is proof that democracy doesn't work. I think it's proof democracy does work because you've got you know, in the halls of power, you you have people trying to work out their differences. And I think that's a significant thing that you don't see in autocratic regimes. The, the the differences are are often just not tolerated. There are a number of sort of factors in this question of dysfunction. One of them there is a, I think in general, there is sort of a pull away from you know the the norms around governing that we've seen in the past so for for example a lot of these folks live on Twitter and in social media and the sort of perks that you get in the halls of Congress being on you know specific committees that allow you to get ahead yes they're still important but your ability to reach people directly you know, gives you sort of a platform now that it's uh, that you can take advantage of that you've not had before. And of course, President Trump uh, really leveraged that to the hilt. And there are others. AOC on the uh, Democratic side, she's got zillions of followers in in social media, and that just puts her in a different position. And I think that's one of the things that's that's driving this is the ability to talk directly to individuals. It's just, it's a different dynamic. Is that dysfunctional? Yeah, it is to a degree. I think the the question is, you know, what's the, if you will, the responsible use of those sorts of mechanisms. And I don't think we've figured that out yet. I think we know in our heart of hearts, but that has not sort of become the norm. This is just more messy than a sign of real dysfunction in, in my view, although it's not void of, you know, dysfunctional element.
2: Eric? I don't really think it's a sign of political dysfunction at all. I think the dysfunction that exists is in the Republican Party.
1: If you think about what's at the root of it, I, I think it's the party is trying to figure out how to move beyond Donald Trump. Not everything fits neatly in every box, but this idea of trying to move away from sort of the autocratic element here that that personified President Trump. And and how the how the party kind of sheds that more zealot-like image and approach, I think that's what we're we're seeing here. It's sort of the battle to how do how do we get through this? And we're gonna see this through 2024. But as this change is taking place, this is the kind of thing that's gonna happen.
0: This very public squabble in the Republican Party that still continues even with Kevin McCarthy being elected as speaker does it underscore the need to find common ground
2: you know when you ask about common ground we normally think of common ground between the democrats and the republicans but uh, that ignores the fact that you know there's lots of different factions and there's lots of different interests within each party uh, and also within the country that aren't within the parties if the republicans uh, are having a difficult time they may need to find some common ground Within their own party. Now, that raises a question of are the ideologues, if you will, acting in good faith or not? And I don't have a solid answer to that. I mean, a lot of people think they're not acting in good faith. But the question of what what is their um, significant concern about the way Washington functions? It's not an unreasonable question and it's not an unreasonable concern. The question is, how do you deal with it? How do you respond to it? And can you respond to it? Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, this kind of drain the swamp idea that every everything has to change, I don't think is is an operation in the spirit of common ground. It's not an effort to try and find a way forward. It's a matter of uh, polarizing your opponents. And I think from that standpoint, they're not operating in, in good faith and, and trying to find common ground.
0: I know that both of you have read a recent opinion column in the Wall Street Journal by Republican Senator Ben Sass. He wrote that the most important political divide in America today is between civic pluralists and political zealots. Is he right, Eric?
2: I think he is largely right. The idea of negotiating, compromising, finding common ground is integral to our form of government. The founding fathers were very clear about that. The point here is to find agreement through debate, discussion, coming together, compromise, and finding common ground. When Where we see people who are unwilling to do that, and unwilling to do it in the face of overwhelming evidence or, and or opposition operating in the spirit in which the government has been designed, they're hurting themselves and they're hurting, they're hurting the country by not trying to seek a way, a way forward. In our work, we, we, we see evidence of this all the time. Many people who are very high-profile members of Congress are not successful legislators because they're not able to find compromise and they're not able to find common ground. And it's the pluralists who are looking for ways forward, who are looking for ways to find com, uh, compromise and find common ground that are uh, the ones who are actually getting things done in, in Washington.
1: I think there is some truth to what Sass is saying here. And that if you look, and particularly in the context of government, as opposed to citizenry, I, I think his his insight on this, I think is, is, is really interesting and, and definitely resonates. The notion that there are those that believe strongly in the power of a strong government and those that are, are more focused on ensuring that the rights of individuals and, you know, the power that that comes from individualism is not trampled on uh, by a government. One sort of, you know, the pluralist side, if you will, trusts citizens and individuals and the other does not maybe trusts some, but overall believes that, you know, you've got to have a stronger power in play if things are going to work. That's I think though to a degree that's sort of an intellectual look at it. I see how he comes up with those those camps. But you know, sort of in the day to day, if you if you think about folks that are uh, where they feel largely uh, disrespected, um, I don't think they look at it that way. They look at it from the perspective of you know there are elites that have this view that's very different than ours and a very different experience from ours and it's resulted in economic hardship for us so we're not you know we're not comfortable with that i think a way to think about this is kind of like a you know like a jewel right there are a lot of facets to this question of division and so forth this is another way to sort of divide the camps but the one thing i would say here is that you know with SAS's analysis that the 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 pluralist side of things you might call those folks common grounders people that believe in common ground not necessarily but there would certainly be a i think a large percentage of those that believe uh in that value and they would see perhaps that as being sort of a unifying thing whereas the zealot side is actually probably two camps those that believe in you know the autocratical side and those that believe in the bureaucratic side so The intellectual exercise to set it up and show that dynamic, I think, is very helpful. I'm not sure it describes exactly how people are thinking, though.
0: Eric, you said the political system itself is not dysfunctional, but does it incentivize zealots over pluralists who just want to get things done?
2: I don't know that the political system does that. I do think that the question of primary voting makes it easier for extremists to get positions and so, you know, to, to to win elections. I don't think that means it incentivizes them. I think it means that the citizens need to recognize that all forms of voting are an important element of uh, the election process. And to the extent that we ignore parts of it, it feeds to minorities who are less. Intimidated by the process, if I can put it that way, more willing to go to to extreme lengths to turn out and show up and you know get their their candidates uh, uh, elected. I think we as citizens need to kind of recognize that fact and recognize that something in the voting process should understand that and and, and acknowledge that. I also think that to a large extent the press enhances the position of people who are extremists because. They're happy to report on extreme positions, extreme sound bites that creates a, a a larger platform for people than they deserve. The freshman representative who's getting the most press of anyone in Washington right now is George Santos, who is getting press because he uh, has appeared to have uh, misrepresented dramatically his resume. And I can't fault the press for that, but I think that that's one of the things that you know, is the way our
1: democracy works. I think the big message there, it's kind of like when we did an event um, a while back with Barney Frank, he made the point that voters need to go vote in primaries. Yeah. And why? Because if you don't, then you're going to have the challenges that Eric was talking about. Uh, you're likely to get people that are more of the the vocal minority, if you will, people that tend to be a little more extreme in their positions. Voters sort of cook their own goose on this. They don't go out and vote when it really counts. But I, I think the numbers—10% of Americans vote in yeah. primaries. Yeah. And um, if if that's the right number, we there are so many elections because of gerrymandering, which is a problem that needs to be addressed. But because of gerrymandering, there are so many elections where the party that's going to win is predetermined, pretty much. It's crucial to vote in the primary because that's when your voice is going to have, you know, the greatest impact. But but at this point, culturally, we just haven't raised the the urgency of, of going out and doing that. And if we did, this conversation about, you know, uh, is the system dysfunctional, it would take on a very different tone, I think. That just may be a fact of our of our democracy, and therefore maybe we do need to make some changes uh, and reform the system so that we don't find ourselves sort of, uh, you know, caught in this trap by you know our own mistakes. Maybe that's the right way to go. I'm not saying we shouldn't we shouldn't look to reform the system, but we would not have to do that. To Eric's point, if more people participated.
0: Yeah. Despite the many criticisms of our political system, there are things that most Americans actually agree on, right?
1: Yeah, the answer is yes. There's a lot of research out there that shows you that we are not as divided as we think we are. There are a lot of factors that play into that. Social media, news outlets and so forth, just because of business models and algorithms, they sort of emphasize the division. We did an event with James Carville and Rhys Prepus recently where Priebus made the point that you know unity doesn't sell. The business models for the media, the divisive element of it, is one of the reasons why you know they are successful as businesses. And so, because that's what we see in the media a lot, we develop this sort of mindset that says, yeah, we're just we're, we really are horribly divided. Just look at MSNBC and Fox News. If you look at the the folks that watch cable news, it's about two percent of the population which is really astounding when you think about it. Then you look at the research by Pew and so many others that really says, you know, there actually are a lot of areas where we really do agree on some very divisive issues like guns and like uh, abortion and so forth. Not that there aren't points of disagreement on those things that are are profound, but in some of the basics, there's a lot more agreement. And I think something that we're trying to do in this organization is we're trying to sort of highlight the fact that we actually do agree on a lot more than we may realize we agree on. And it's part of the, the element of inspiration that comes through our work, is that people see that and it gives them hope.
2: I think what's significant about that is that people have a misperception about what, what others think. They think that people who disagree with them have a frame of reference, which is not what those people actually have. So there's a misperception between people as as to how far apart they actually are. That is a task of common ground committee. Look to this place in the future of showing people how much agreement there actually is and the fact that we are jumping to the wrong conclusions about what others think about us and think about our views.
0: Eric Helson and Bruce Bond Listen to more episodes of Our Take with Bruce and Eric's behind-the-scenes look at how they work to bridge divides and find common ground. And find all our podcasts at commongroundcommittee.org. Click on the button that says Listen. Thanks.